0: And I'm not involved in any productions I'd like to make well, I like to make lots of films but money uh, if you're not getting returns on the previous productions it's difficult to get finance uh, but I'm sort of stuck with the horror fantasy genre now because that's what I'm known for uh, and I suppose they are good fun to make and if I got the opportunity I'd like to do something later in the year or next year but I can't really Say what yet because I don't know. Sadly, uh,
1: good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Indicator Cast episode 39. Uh, tonight, we have a, a special episode dedicated to a certain box set which is coming out soon. Um, but before we get started, we will do the round table. Um, tonight, I'm joined here with the regular uh, Ryan Kendall. How are you doing, good sir?
2: Um, good, man. I'm good, thank you. I've had my beer for today, so I'm nice and chilled.
1: Excellent, excellent. And uh, also joined is the
0: regular Tony Meaches. How are you doing this evening, Tony? Doing very well, thank you very much. Um, also looking forward to discussing this box set. This is going to be a monster episode for sure. Yep, it's going to be a doozy.
1: We... um. Uh, Tony, we've obviously been quite busy recording other episodes for other yeah. podcasts, which we'll talk about in a bit later on. So, uh, yes, busy time with podcasting. And uh, joining us for the first time here at Indicator Cast is uh, uh, someone we know very well, but his first appearance on the podcast is uh, Simon Miller. How are you doing this evening? Good, sir. Well, doing well. Thanks for having me on. Welcome to the podcast. Um, and also, we have um returning guest um you know we, we have many fans of of this returning guest her knowledge is incredible um Suzanne how are you doing this evening
3: hi there I'm good thanks thanks for having me back
1: excellent excellent we look forward to it um and Simon just quickly do you just want to tell uh, listeners a little bit about yourself I know you're a big movie fan like all of us and uh, and you also have a, a YouTube channel I believe
4: yeah that's right John um I go online uh, under the name of uh, Explosive Action, Uh, that brand, I suppose, we can call it a brand these days. Um, I use that on YouTube, um, on Instagram, all the various socials. um, And I actually have a much maligned and somewhat forgotten website, explosiveaction.com, which is what started all this doing action movie reviews. But it's been quite some time since I've done a review. Most of the time I spend uh, doing uh, videos on YouTube Talking about uh, music, or talking about movies like this today.
1: Very cool. And um, we all know that you're quite the uh, physical media fan, shall we say? Um, based oh, yeah, on, definitely. people yeah. can just go to your channel and see your Man Cave tours.
4: Pretty <laughs> much. Um, I've, I've decked out the entire garage of this house. It is wall-to-wall posters and shelving. And there's multiple thousands of uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, um, VHS, Laserdisc. Even some VCDs, just uh, all all kinds of stuff, and uh,
1: yeah, very much physical media forever. Yes, absolutely, and um, and also sorry, just just on Indicator, you're um, you, obviously you know of Indicator. You've, you've I believe you've got a few of their releases, and um, and presume you like what these guys do. Yeah, absolutely. Indicator's really really good quality releases. It's uh, it's a
4: bit like having a a UK Criterion. Um, I've sort of put their releases into that kind of basket there's a lot of um a lot of love going into their restorations and, and the, uh, the features and even down to just the the physical item uh you know, nice booklets and limited editions uh, at the the onsets um and yeah i'm i'm not a completist on on the label but i do have um a dozen or so really good quality um
1: titles from their range yeah yep absolutely and they uh do keep that quality going, it's something that other UK labels <clears throat> may have dropped off a little bit, and uh, I think Indicator have really taken that banner in terms of, you know, really premium editions. So, yeah, yeah, whenever they do a release, it's a treat. So, um, excellent look. Uh, yeah, so tonight, in case you probably guessed or read the title, we're here to talk about a box set coming up uh, called Magic Myth and Mutilation, the micro-budget cinema of Michael J. Murphy, 1967 to 2015, limited edition. Um, Now, this is an announcement that um, kind of came out of nowhere, Um, but uh, yes, it's an an amazing looking set. So, I'll I'll start off just with the synopsis of the box set, because there's a lot to get through tonight, and obviously that's why we brought Suzanne in, because Suzanne um, has a lot to tell us about this director. So, before we start, I'll just quickly jump into it. So... um, All right, so this is coming out November 21, 2022. Uh, So amongst overlooked filmmakers, British director Michael J. Murphy ranks as one of the most sorely neglected. Having cut his teeth on a variety of homemade 8mm shorts, he had completed three feature-length productions by the age of 18. Over the next five decades, Murphy would go on to make many more films across a variety of genres, dividing his productions between Greece, Portugal, and the UK with Family, Family, friends, and local stage performers, becoming his regular cast and crew in exchange for Holidays in the Sun. Uh, despite the prol- prolific output, a total of more than 30 completed films over half a century, of which 26 survived, uh, Michael, uh, sorry, Murphy's work remains rarely seen and little championed. Uh, fitfully available on videotape and barely represent on DVD, this comprehensive and long um Long-gesturing 10-disc Blu-ray collection seeks to rectify that situation once and for all, boasting all new 2K restorations from archival 16mm and 18mm elements, as well as a number of new digital captures from Murphy's personal tape masters. This extensive retrospective of the obsessive auteur's work is bolstered by a wealth of bonus features, including uh, surviving fragments from from Lost Works and a 120-page book, all of which provides the definitive account of the weird and wonderful world of Britain's greatest underherald DIY filmmaker. So, uh, we'll, we'll just before we jump into anything else, we'll just cover the extras of what is in this set, just to get an idea on how massive it is. Um, uh, Tony, what is in the set?
0: Well, there's quite a lot in this set. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, there's there's a whole heap. But I'll start it off with 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 this one. The Indicator Limited Edition 10 Blu-ray box set special features include all-new 2K restorations by Powerhouse Films using film elements from the Murphy archives of of Tristan and Hizolt from 1970, Happy Ever After from 1974, Secrets from 1977, Almost a Movie from 1979, The Cell from 1980, Stay from 1980, Death in the Family from 1981, Invitation to Hell from 1983, The Last Night from 1983, Bloodstream from 1985, Moonchild from 1989, Torment from 1990, Atlantis from 1991, Road to Nowhere from 1993, Tristan Version 1 from 1999, ZK3 from 2012, Necros, Isle of the Dead from 2014, and The Return of Alan Strange from 2015. And there are standard definition presentations of newly digitized, the newly digitized from Murphy's Tape Masters of Quaylan from 1983, Tristan, also known as Legend of the Hero from 1986, Death Run from 1987, Avalon from 1988, Second Sight from 1992, The Rite of Spring version 1 from 1995, The Rite of Spring version 2 from 1995, Tristan version 2 from 1999, Roxy from 2004, and Scare from 2008. Original mono soundtracks, over 34 hours worth of film content, Audio commentary with Michael Murphy and actors Sally Duncan and Phil Linden on Invitation to Hell from 2008. Audio commentary with author and arts professor Johnny Walker on Invitation to Hell from 2022. Audio commentary with Michael Murphy, Duncan and Linden on The Last Night from 2008. Audio commentary with Murphy, actors June Bunday, Judith Holding, and Lyndon on Atlantis from 2010. An audio commentary with Murphy and Holding on Scare from 2009. And Murphy's Law from two, that was released in 2022, which is a three-part documentary assessing Murphy's five-decade career, featuring interviews with Murphy, Bundy, Holding, Chris Jupp, Stephen Longhurst, Patrick Oliver, filmmakers Jackson Batchelor, Sam Mason-Bell, and Tom Lee Rudder, and film historians Daryl Buxton and Walker, and film programmer Paul Cotgrove. Wow, there's so many in here. I don't think I could finish it at all, so I might as well let Ryan continue on with the rest. Uh, Ryan, would you like to continue on?
2: That was a really good segue. I'll give you that. <laughs> 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 I, I would love to. <laughs> um, We've got the Horror on Sea interview with Michael J. Murphy from 2013, the prolific filmmaker in conversation with Bundy and Lyndon, uh, recorded for the British Horror Film Festival, the making of Invitation to Hell and The Last Night from 2008, a retrospective documentary featuring interviews with Murphy, Lyndon and Duncan, uh, the making of Atlantis from t- 2010, two-part retrospective documentary featuring interviews with Murphy, Lyndon, Bundy, and Holding. The Making of Scar from 2009, uh, another retrospective documentary featuring interviews with Murphy and Holden. Uh, the Making of Roxy from 2004, documentary featuring interviews with actors Mary Ann Barlow, Bruce Lawrence, Ross Maxwell, and Valia Yanaru, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, the making of ZK3 from 2012, a re- retrospective documentary featuring interviews with Murphy, Holding, and Lyndon. Uh, the Rite of Spring, behind the scenes from 1999. Necros, uh, behind the scenes from 2012. Scare, uh, script read through from 2008. Surviving fragments from six lost Murphy films Atlantis, City of Sin from 67. Bodakia Bodacia, uh, from 1968. Gods and Heroes from 71. Two versions of Seventh Day from 76 and 77. And Insight from 1978. Outtakes from Moonchild, Torment, Atlantis, Second Sight, and Scar. Or Scare, sorry. Uh, Mute rushes from the lost 16 millimeter version of Scar. Scare, sorry. Is it Scare? Is it scare. Uh, Scare with optional Mm. selected scene (laughs) commentary with (laughs) actor Oliver Price. My apologies. Uh, The return of Alan Strange. Test footage from 2014. Michael J. Murphy on Beast 2010. Interview with the filmmaker about Chris Jumps remake of his lost version of Scare. Video tour of Michael J. Murphy's home from 2014. Michael J. Murphy tribute from 2015. A documentary short made for the marilyn films international website our home video footage shot by murphy trailers for Invi- invitation to hell the last night bloodstream legend of a hero death run avalon moonchild torment atlantis road to nowhere the Rite of spring tristan roxy scare zk3 necros the isle of the dead and return of alan strange goddamn. damn original stay seven inch single needle drop recording image galleries script galleries limited edition exclusive 120 page book with new essays by murphy experts wayne megan paul higson daryl buxton and johnny walker Uh, comprehensive filmography and film credits World premieres on Blu-ray, limited edition box set of 6,000, numbered units for the UK and US, uh, subject number to change, numbered edition 280 to 290. So this is their big, biggest one yet. Mm. Um, Cert 18, and it's region free for you people worried wow. about region twos and ones and shit.
1: So any anyone can watch this? Yes. So, uh, any region, because um, we have a lot of US listeners that are uh complain about the region B, but that's good. Very, very good. Um mm. you can breathe now, Ryan. That's good. Oh bro, you saying, like all the titles, you just like rana,
2: rana, rana. <laughs> mental. It's,
1: it's, it's insane. You now this is what you call a box hit. Like um yeah. when you when you're gonna put extras this this is insane. I mean this is a guy's life work in, in a yeah, box set.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. Um so yeah so so um, I mean obviously the director himself michael j murphy um suzanne um do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about this director michael j murphy he's a bit of a unknown figure um i guess in certain 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 regions um i know some of his films made their way down here to australia which was pretty amazing i know there were a lot of um uh, u.s audience members on the group that never heard of him because I'd, many of his films barely made it to the u.s as well so um yeah suzanne um, I'll, I'll pass over to you if you want to Tell us a bit about this uh interesting filmmaker
3: yeah so we got some pretty good biography details in that synopsis from indicator um michael j murphy was born in 1951 and he sadly passed away in 2015. he had his own production company uh, merlin films which he spelled multiple different ways over the years And it was through this production company that he had, that he made his films. He has 29 directorial credits and 19 writing credits to his name. He began his filmmaking career in the 60s when he was just a teenager, shooting eight millimeter films. His first feature was Bodicea from 1966, made when he was just 15. That's since been lost, but as we heard, there have been some fragments floating around online, and these are included in the extras of this box set. And Bodicea was, of course, a fabled Celtic queen of the Britons who led an uprising against the Roman occupation in the first century. And this film would set the template for much of Michael Murphy's filmmaking in terms of the subject matter, and having the drive to make these rather ambitious micro-budget films, and the title of this box set, "Myth," uh, oh, sorry, "Magic, Myth, and Mutilation," perfectly sums up his work. It's a genre film, thematically concerned with the occult, mythology, and horror. And you can slot almost all of his films into one or more of these categories with an occasional thriller and even a post-apocalyptic outing with Death Run from 1987. So have you guys heard of Michael Murphy or seen any of his films before this box set was announced?
2: Never heard of him. It's kind of like all the um, Severin box sets that they did. I like had no idea about these like cult directors, <laughs> but um, interested to dig in, for sure.
4: I hadn't yet yeah. before, but uh, I had seen one of the films without realizing who he was, which might be the case for some people. I think a lot of this was uh, for the VHS market.
1: Yes, and I, I personally I- had not not heard of him before this box set um i'd heard of some of his films but like like um it's funny just they've come up here and there but i I never seen them so and once again i didn't really realize who he was and um so yeah this this was a
0: complete blind announcement tony yeah same with me unfortunately i have not heard of michael j murphy or seen any of his movies but, but this box set i can't wait i'm really looking forward to it Looking forward. So, to, sorry.
3: No, no, go on.
0: Oh, all I was gonna say was, um, we're looking forward to to delving into Michael J. Murphy's world of of micro-budget cinema and see how it is. I'm really excited for it.
3: Yeah, I'm with Simon on this one. So I was actually a big fan of one of his films, and when they announced this box set, I thought, oh. The name sounded vaguely familiar but I couldn't place it and the film is, of course, Avalon, the uh, sword and sorcery film which did make it to VHS Um, and I looked it up and I'm like, oh, it's the Avalon guy and I told Simon, it's the Avalon guy and um, we just ordered the box set immediately, solely based.
4: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs)
3: on that movie because we we both we talk about that film you know um and we will talk about it a bit later on um in this episode but it's true there is not a whole lot of information out there about michael murphy even online so if you search him there's just not a lot which probably left some people scratching their heads at this announcement I know for some people YouTube opened the door to his films because he did have his own YouTube channel and put up some of his films and trailers reaching a whole new audience in kind of the last few years, which is how I found his movies initially um, as part of my personal endless quest for sword and sorcery movies but this box set will be many people's first exposure to his work and it's a release that fits in well with all of these regional horror and micro budget horror sets that have been coming out from other labels in the last few years which ryan did mention that um are you guys fans of micro-budget horror and micro-budget films and some of these box sets that have been coming out over the last few years? I know you've got some, John.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan because it's 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 a whole other world discovering these boxes and um, and yeah, just seeing like for example when Severin did the uh, Andy Milligan box, like I'd seen some of his films, but I didn't realize how diverse his filmography was and and yeah when i think of micro budget i think of just films shot on you know maybe eight millimeter 16 millimeter like real homemade efforts but actually um they they try and make them look more epic than they really are than they really are i mean one of my favorite films is um the dead next door which which was a a zombie film but that was shot on eight millimeter and and they tried to make it look as epic as they could despite having barely any budget so yeah these boxes are really great sort of Director discoveries, and uh, I, I like working my way through it, especially the regional stuff. So yeah, it's um, I'm very glad that a lot of these uh filmmakers have put their heart and soul into these films are finally getting some exposure um to the to the public.
3: I know Simon, you like to take a deep dive into the world of obscure trash, don't you?
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, and the same with John. I've been enjoying these box sets. The uh, the Andy Milligan one, uh, particularly. Uh, has a lot of fun ones on it. Um, I think uh, the, um, the Al Adamson one is uh, well; it's comprehensive. I can I can definitely tell you that. <laughs> it's um, there, there's some that are you know genuinely good fun. I, I think Brain of Blood is a lot of fun, um, but there's some that it's a bit of a chore to get through. But I think that's part of the part of the whole experience. Just start, and at, at the beginning of the. Filmography and work your way through it, and you'll find some duds, and you'll find some real, real duds, but you'll find some things
0: that
3: are just charming. How about you, Tony?
0: Um, I absolutely love micro budget cinema. I'm a, I'm a huge I'm obsessed with cult films, and of course, can't go wrong with micro budget ones. Like, to me, my favorite director um who did micro budget movies will always be John Waters, especially with um his early films like um, Mondo Trasho, Multiple Maniacs, of course, Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, and then Desperate Living, and then after that he went mainstream. But those films have a certain charm to it, especially because um, it, they're trash, they're like treasures. They're, they're beautiful to watch. I love mm-hmm. them. And, um, and another movie that comes to mind that's extremely micro-budget Is Herc Harvey's *Carnival of Souls*? That is one of my all-time favorite horror films, Mm. and um, it's it's the only movie Herc Harvey has ever made. And um, it may be low, it may be micro-budget, but my goodness, does it pack a punch! I love that one in particular. Mm, That's a good Good
1: one. one. I didn't, I didn't, I just, yeah, didn't realize, but 100%, yeah. John Waters' early films are 100% micro-budget, 16 Mm. mil. Um, yeah, like all homemade, friends and family, you know, local actors, uh, yeah. stage players. So and that's the thing. I think the, the, the difference, I mean, back then, like, you know, micro-budget meant something like it was a real effort. And I feel like now when the micro-budget films coming out now are just... Oh. <laughs> Terrible, <laughs> personally. So I hate to don't want to offend anyone. I'm just saying, like in terms of the the production, like it's it's just a different world now compared to what it was back then. With with 16 mil, 8 mil, uh, or even SOV, um, I feel like now everyone has an iPhone. They can go out and make a so-called micro-budget film. But back then, it was a real effort to, to do something like that. So yeah, it's it's a different world in comparison I think now. You want that, John, like the barrier to entry
4: now is is so low that you know <laughs> anyone can get their Samsung flip phone out make a thing which you know that's great and that can work but
1: yeah you you often get some pretty low quality films out of that yes and if it runs 90 minutes it's a (coughs) so-called movie yes
3: and i guess one thing people might not realize is that back then film any kind Mm. of film cost quite a bit of money and getting Mm. it developed costs money too Um, because I used to do photography, and even that, you had to buy your film, you had to develop it yourself or send it away and pay for someone to develop it. So it was restrictive. It took effort, you know, to do these things. How about you, Ryan? You like your micro-budget films?
2: I don't mind my micro-budget. When you said micro-budget, I went straight to, like, Jess Franco, and, like, Joe Amato, like, just that real cheap quick stick sort of stuff, um, which pretty much what John and, um, Simon have said, like, there's a lot of garbage there, but every now and again you do find a gem, and I guess that's what the fun about, like, these directors and these box sets and what have you are about mm, yeah. as well. It's just, like, yeah, they're all doing it for the love, and, you know, as you said, because it, it's expensive to like buy film and develop it and all that, so they obviously had a passion for it. You know, everyone's learning as they go, but um, yeah, uh, I, do, I do. I like my micro budget early John Waters, um, Jesus Franco sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think some who else. I don't
4: know the Bill Rebane box is also a really good one if you've ever dug into his films. Yes. Yeah, uh, was it the Weird Wisconsin? Weird Wisconsin. Wisconsin ah, yeah. oh, that one. That's
2: got. Ah, oh, yeah, I've been thinking about getting that one.
4: Yeah, highly recommend it. Um, some of those i I've, I've been wanting to see for a long time, like uh, the Alpha Incident. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a really really nice box set
1: that one from Arrow. Yeah, and I
2: have, there was, I have seen that one. Yeah,
1: it's a good one. There was the other one. Was it the William Graffy, Graffy box set? I think. Uh, what was the guy? He did Stingray. A bunch of... They, they were just, like, really low-budget sort of Florida shot films. But that that was a really fun one, too. It came... He came from the Swamp, I think it was called. That's a... Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. another one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, that's another really... They, they pair quite nicely. Yeah.
2: yeah. Mm. I think Arrow's got a sail on now. I have a squiz. <laughs> Do it.
1: Get on
3: it. <laughs> yeah. I know some people have been surprised by this announcement from Indicator, because typically... Mm. Indicator releases what we consider masterpiece cinema or films of great significance and artistic merit. However, this is quite removed from that typical expectation of what Indicator releases. It's real DIY stuff. Um, But I think it's also quite perfect because in terms of micro-budget, and regional filmmakers. Michael Murphy is Britain's version of one of these guys. Like, it seems to have a bit of a following, this micro-budget cinema in America. Mm -hmm. Um, People are really getting on it with these box sets. And this is Britain's version. And he deals with British identity and lots of uniquely British subjects. So in essence, it's actually a really great addition to their catalogue being a British label as well as it being something very fun and unique that I I really hope people can enter into with an open mind um, and a sense of adventure. What really intrigues me about Michael Murphy is that he makes historical and fantasy films on a micro budget and I think that's really adventurous not to mention that I have the patience for and will pretty much watch anything in the realms of sword and sorcery. So I'm super excited about this set because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought we could discuss not all of Michael Murphy's films, cause I've only seen a couple of them. Um, and I mean, there's a hell of a lot of them. So we'll just talk about a couple, but I thought we could talk about the different categories of this box step set starting with myth so michael murphy's mythological topics leap straight from the storybooks and fantasy fiction that was popular in the early and mid 20th century and you get the feeling that these books were a big influence on him and his ongoing exploration of these stories which are rooted in the epic tradition of storytelling. And it seems to be an ongoing theme for me too, coming onto your podcasts and talking about these same subjects, but I do really love it. Mm -hmm. And just to recap, the tradition of epic literature and film comes from ancient oral traditions of storytelling, including the Homeric epics of ancient Greece, Norse sagas, and British folklore, such as Arthurian legends and Robin Hood, etc. And obviously, Michael Murphy draws on the Arthurian legends for his films. And these kinds of stories are more myth and romance rather than actual historical fact. And they generally span the period from the classical heroic age to the late Middle Ages. And as a young man, Michael Murphy might have also watched some of the many epic adventure and peplum films being churned out during the 50s and 60s, which saw a huge revival of these genres, largely due to the Italian peplum craze. And of course, in response to their popularity, Hollywood and Britain also mounted their own similar productions, as did Michael Murphy with his DIY version of Bodicea in 1966, which I can only admire. I mean, imagine being a 15-year-old kid and going and seeing one of these big um, Peplum or epic films and going home and making your version of Bodicea. Can you imagine that?
4: uh, He's pretty inspired to be able to go and do that. It's a shame that we can't see that one
3: yeah there's, there's snippets and i have seen snippets online they're included in the box set as we said um and it looks great like it's bloody it's got fighting it's got you know togas yeah it looks what excellent
1: in- and, and, and he was making these when he was like a teenager wasn't he Wait,
3: yeah 15. so he um, made go to see it he was 15. so yeah i can just kind of imagine him Yeah, like I said, watching one of these epic films and Mm. going home, I'm making Bodicea. Um, And
1: and and you think about this that time what what in the sixties like you know it wasn't as accessible in terms of cameras and stuff, so he would really have to round up to to make it happen. That's pretty insane.
3: (laughs) Mm. So the genre would also see a revival in the eighties in the form of the sword and sorcery boom, largely kicked off by the success of films like John Borman's Excalibur from 1981 and John Millis's Conan the Barbarian from 1982. The early 80s also heralded a slew of other similar sword and sorcery films like Hawk the Slayer, The Beastmaster, The Sword and the Sorcerer, Krull, um, Disney's Dragon Slayer. And by the mid 80s, we had big budget films like lady hawk ridley scott's legend and willow kind of rounding it out in 1988 not to forget all of the small budget sword and sorcery flicks that these blockbusters open the door for like the *Deathstalker* franchise which was part of a 10 film sword and sorcery deal for roger corman and this cycle of Corman Sword and Sorcery Adventures was mostly filmed in Mexico and Argentina to keep production costs down and included films like Sorceress, uh, The Warrior and the Sorceress, Barbarian Queen, Amazons. And then we had all the European Sword and Sorcery productions like the Ator films, Hundra, which reused sets and costumes from Conan the Barbarian. Umberto Lenzi's Iron Master, uh, Ruggiero Diodato's Barbarians, and Lucio Fulci's Infamous Conquest. Um, So Wikipedia lists 50 sword and sorcery films as being made from 1980 to 1989. And I think I can even think of some that are not on that list. And even if they had limited or no cinema run, they continued to gain a cult following due to tv programming and of course the booming video rental market of the 80s and 90s this market also boosted the visibility of micro budget sword and sorcery offerings like these of michael murphy which were probably snapped up in distributors insatiable need for content and these videos lured people in with their lurid cover art They promised ample nudity, sex and action, whether they actually delivered it or not. And all you had to do was go to the video store and look for cover art by artists like Boris Valero, um, Renato Casaro, or in the vein of Frank Frazetta, and you pretty much knew what to expect. Um, Do you guys have a favourite sword and sorcery movie?
0: Oh boy, do I! I've got so many. I can I can name them. Um, I can give you top three live action and top three animated. Actually, it's, it's quite a lot. Mm. <laughs> quite a lot of them, but I'll give you one of each. Probably my favourite animated, as you just said, is Frank Frank Frazetta. Um, uh, is Ralph Bakshi's Fire and Ice. That's probably my favourite mm. animated um sword and sorcery film. But um, but then there's another but one of my other favourite live action sword and sorcery films is Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood. That is mm. that movie mm-hmm. is incredible. Absolutely love that one.
3: Simon, I know you're with me. We've bonded over the sword and sorcery <laughs> fandom.
4: Absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously. I go by the name Explosive Action, some giant Schwarzenegger fan. You can't go past Conan. Um, but there's one that I really do enjoy. Um, and we now have, uh, thanks to the Germans, a fancy Blu ray media book, uh, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, <laughs> um, which came out in 1985. That one stars uh, Bo Svensson, uh, which is always good fun. He plays <laughs> a character called Kor. And he helps a kid that's uh, also called Simon. Probably why I like it. <laughs> take down an evil wizard, and this is—it's got Corman all over it. So, the the initial cut of the movie didn't even crack one hour. So Corman just got twenty minutes of footage from Sorceress and Deathstalker and made it a bit longer. It's it's a it's a real uh, doozy. I, I I like watching this one. It's a good fun.
3: That's like the Deathstalker sequels. They just recycle.
4: Yes, yeah,
3: footage. Exactly.
4: yeah, that's just what Corman and New Concord did. Uh, he just, and I'll talk more about him when we get to some of the other sections, but uh, I just love the way that, that Roger Corman put together films
3: John?
1: yeah, there's so many. Um, I guess one of the big ones uh, I've always been a huge fan of is um, Albert Pewen's, speaking of Sword and Sandals, Sword and the Sorcerer, uh, which is a uh, it's a really fun film. Like it really is, and, and it has so much rewatch value. And it's quite a, you know, quite a sort of more violent, sort of darker, I think R-rated, US r rated Saw and Sorcerer film. Um I, I love the Deathstalker films. They're fun, like you mentioned. Um, I also have always been a big fan of Red Sonja. Um, you know, some say it's not as good as obviously the, the Conan films, but I do like it, and I just got the 4K of it recently. Um, and uh, yeah, and I also, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you mentioned earlier, Suzanne, <laughs> Fulci's Conquest, just because it's so bizarre and it's okay. so violent and more of a horror film rather than a sword and sorcerer. That's that's why I like it, because it mixes, I guess, a bit of genre. But, uh, yeah, those are some of my favourites.
3: Yeah, good films, ones.
4: What other film can you see? Bow and arrows that shoot
1: lasers. <laughs> that's Fulci for you right there. Great. Incredible. I'm glad that finally got a too. so, yes. <laughs>
3: Ryan?
2: Yeah. I'm looking at that wiki list. I think my favourite, like, it's a childhood favourite and it's Willow. I loved oh, Willow beautiful. so much when I was young. I, I That like that film in Con Air I, like, watched constantly. It was great fun. I love Willow to bits. A combination. Yeah, I know, right? Childhood. <laughs> you mission. see me as, like, a nine-year-old with, like, a Con Air cap. <laughs> <It's> great. <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah. Um, felt like the same universe to me. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, like, one, an animated one. Like, there's so many good ones. Like, even Heavy Metal. That's got some sword and sorcery in it. I love that. It was great. Flight of the Dragons, which is an old school one. Um, there was another one that I saw somewhere. I can't remember. Iron Master. I remember watching Iron Master. That was fun. Yeah, I think Willow's probably my favourite. It's just a childhood um, memory. I'm always watching it and just adore it. It's fun.
3: Mm, for me, Conan the Barbarian is in my t- top films of all time. So is Excalibur, um, which does have elements of sword and sorcery. I loved all the big 80s ones like Lady Hawk and mm. Legend. Um, yeah. I'm with Tony on Flesh and Blood. Uh, from Paul Paul Verhoeven I absolutely adore that it's it's drama it's you know it's got multiple genres but he definitely has some of that in it too
5: Um,
3: I love Umberto Lenzi's Iron Master I just love it that of course has George Eastman in it and wow. I like a couple of other um, obscure ones, which I'll just name because they're ones not talked about that often. I really, really love 1983's Hearts and Armour. It's a hard one to find. I only had a VHS. We haven't had a DVD. Hint, hint. Mm. Uh, bring it to Blu-ray. That, of course, features Tanya Roberts and Ron Moss, who is better known as Ridge Forrester on The Bold and the Beautiful and he makes a yeah very handsome yeah. knight in shining armor as a young man and the other one which is one of my all-time favorites is hundra from 1983 starring Lorreen landon and as i mentioned that actually reused some of the props and costumes and things from Conan the barbarian and apparently um when Arnold Schwarzenegger saw it, he, you know, said, I'm not going to do his voice, but he said, they stole my movie. So yeah, but it's great. It's like the female version of Conan and their one's not talked about that often, um, Mm -hmm. which I absolutely love. But as I said, I do have infinite patience, even for the most C-level or (laughs) C-level sword and sorcery. And I've, Put it down to that I grew up in a time of text-based computer games. So if you can sit and play one of them all day, you can certainly watch just about anything.
2: Should we talk about like the Scorpion King series and like the Dragon Heart series that we got going here as well?
3: <laughs> if you like them, <laughs> like the modern, you know, modern equivalent. Um, <laughs> you know, these kind of films pop up here and there over the years. Um, so. Anyone have any other sword and sorcery films before I move on?
4: Well, I know I've, I've helped fill out your collection a bit, Suzanne, um, with uh, some of those VHS-only ones. Um, sword of the Barbarians was a, a pretty fun film. Um, the Italians did a good job at you know, well, ripping off everything. But when they, they did these ones, they just did exactly what you wanted, adding uh, more sex and violence. Um, So yeah, I I quite like that one, Sword of the Barbarians,
5: 1982.
3: Yeah. Well, throughout the 80s, the sword and sorcery craze, it did permeate entertainment, including the world of games, most notably with Dungeons and Dragons, like rising popularity. And then later computer games like Ghosts and Goblins, Golden Axe, Ultima, all those. We of course had He-Man and all those action figures. We had She-Ra and all her action figures, and then we had toy spin-offs like Golden Girl, which was a really obscure European one, which was like kind of like She-Ra, barbarian women. So we just had so much of this sword and sorcery in the '80s. Did you guys get into it, Tony? I know that you you like He-Man and She-Ra.
0: Oh, I adore! I grew up with He Man and She and um, other um anime. Like, I, I wasn't a toy collector to be honest, but I was, and I just love watching the Saturday morning cartoons. And but with um with He Man and Shira, they played every single day, which is fantastic. But also another um another um show that I loved watching. I don't know if you consider it sword and sorcery. Um, is um I don't know if you remember Thundercats. Yes. Yeah, that's another one I watched. But, yeah, but He-Man and She-Ra, they're the two I'm obsessed with. I I adore them.
3: Simon, did you feel the power?
4: I felt the power for Dolph Lundgren's Masters of the Universe. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. It doesn't get any better than that. But, uh, yeah, that was pretty much my extent of things. I never really played with the figures. Um, I was always a Star Wars figure kid at the time. But, uh, yeah, Masters of the Universe, the movie... That's uh, that's some quality entertainment right there.
3: I had every single Shearer figure. I had a Shearer costume. I had the Shearer show bag. I was so into Shearer, <laughs> it was outrageous.
4: You shocked me, Suzanne.
3: <laughs> well, now you know why I'm like this today.
0: I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, guys, anyone else? Uh, did you play any sword and sorcery computer games, oh, anything like that?
2: Play. I didn't play computer games, but, like, when there was, like, those really long toilet roll stick things, I'd always swing it around like a sword and hit my sisters with it. <laughs> 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 you know, any time something like a long stick, any kid, I tell you, he would think that's a sword or a lightsaber straight up. Oh, yeah.
4: <laughs> I used to for the uh, Sierra games. Um king's quest and that kind of thing. Uh they were always good fun, but um one of the first games I had on my first computer was Dungeon Master, which is one of the very first dungeon crawlers and it was it was based heavily off um, Dungeons and Dragons and you just you're a, a tribe of four uh you know mixed warrior, uh you know a wizard, all the usuals and just getting lower and lower into the uh the depths of this dungeon to defeat an evil wizard. I mean, it's everything you want.
3: For sure. John, what about you?
1: Yeah, look, it was never, um, I was just trying to think uh, as a kid. Yeah, Soul and Sorcery was never really in my world. Um, I guess I must have missed a lot of it. I guess it, the big standout film for me when I was younger was Cone the Barbarian. I, I watched that quite a bit because it played on TV. But uh, yeah, it never, never was really, really sort of my thing. But uh, it wasn't until later on I began to appreciate the genre and discover it. But um yeah, I seem to miss the boat there on a lot of them, but, um, yeah. And I did play the old sword and sorcery type game, like Elder Scrolls and whatnot, but, yeah. Yeah, well, later there was Diablo, that was a really Diablo, popular yep. one, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. I, yeah, it wasn't until later on I was like, wow, this is whole world. So,
3: mm. yeah. Oh, it is a whole world.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. Um, My
5: game
3: The term sword and sorcery was actually really first used in the 60s to describe the fiction of writers like Robert E Howard, the creator of Conan, who was in turn inspired by the 19th century and early 20th century exotic adventure fiction of people like Jack London um, and the Tarzan creator Edgar Rice Burroughs sax roma who gave us fu manchu as well as the pulp fiction found in magazines from the 20s to the 50, 50s most notably weird tales magazine which is probably one of the best known um, the sword and sorcery genre is a sub genre of fantasy typically characterized by elements of action adventure fantasy and magic with its roots in the epic literature tradition. It's differentiated from high fantasy, so like the work of Tolkien, by its focus on action and heroics, rather than this very intense world and character building, so much more action and hero-oriented. And In the 60s, the American Swordsman and Sorcerers Guild was formed by authors Lynn Carter, L Sprague de Camp, and John Jakes to promote the popularity and reputation of sword and sorcery fiction. Other members of the Guild included writers like Fritz Lieber, Michael Moorcock, and one of my favourites, Tanith Lee, who was a wonderful, wonderful fantasy writer. And Lynn Carter said, this is a quote direct, We call a story sword and sorcery when it's an action tale derived from the traditions of the pulp magazine adventure story set in a land or age or world of the author's invention, a milieu in which magic actually works and the gods are real and a story moreover, which pits a stalwart warrior in direct conflict with the forces of supernatural evil. In terms of cinema, Sword and Sorcery shares a lot in common with Sword and Sandal films, and obviously the names are a little similar. So the films such as Steve Reeves, Hercules, or the Harryhausen films like Jason and the Argonauts, the Sinbad movies, and Clash of the Titans, with which the genre shares not just a lineage, but the same commonalities of heroic adventure, myth and magic. Like all genres, the fortune of sword and sorcery has risen and fallen in cycles beginning in the 20s and then lulling in popularity around the time of World War II, when there was a new focus on technology and science fiction rather than fantasy and magic. But it kicked off again in a really big way from the 60s right through to the 80s. And it's even now, yet again, seeing a resurgence in popularity with shows like Game of Thrones and The Witcher, which both definitely incorporate elements of sword and sorcery with the high fantasy genre. And in retrospect, the sword and sorcery or sword and sandal tag has often been used detrimentally as a put down, with the films receiving little critical acclaim or consideration as serious cinema, Despite being massively popular, and I love to keep talking about these sub-genres, and they are the sub-genres that defy critics and academics by their huge popularity. And these films are, after all, the continuation of these storytelling traditions that have existed for thousands of years and the continuation of European folklore tradition reinvented in our modern age. I said pretty much the same thing in the Robin Hood podcast that we did recently, That this aspect of these films cannot be understated, nor can our need for escapism be underestimated. And we just keep retelling these kinds of heroic, epic adventure stories in new ways over and over again, which leads me to Michael Murphy's Avalon. This
4: is no illusion, Merlin. Use Excalibur.
0: Use the power of the sword, boy. Why me?
3: You do not believe in it. There is no sorcery film that I'm personally a big fan of, and so is Simon, my fellow sword and sorcery fanatic. And we have talked many times about our admiration of this movie because we're pretty much the only two people we know who've ever seen it. You actually had the VHS of the movie, didn't you, Simon?
4: I do. I'm holding it right now. Wow. Yeah, so. That's what started me on this this journey. And I mentioned before, I didn't even realise it. Um, his name is on the back, but that was meaningless to me at the time. What what uh, I took away from this was um, the amazing cover art, which looks more like the, the Roger Corman type artwork um, from like Deathswalker and that kind of thing, which of course is overselling the film 10,000 fold, as is the quote, which doesn't have any reference on it. It's just a quote. Avalon, Land of Magic, a fantastic journey into fantasy in the tradition of Conan the Barbarian. You know, whenever they say in the tradition, it means it's not as good as. But um, this VHS, yeah, this is the Australian tape. It came out um, about 1992, amazingly on a bigger label. It came out on uh, Columbia TriStar, distributed by Hoyts, which is not what you'd expect.
3: I think they sold them on that cover
4: oh completely I mean it sold me it's an Which, amazing.
3: yes well can you describe the cover
4: well it's um a, a shirtless man and he's mostly pantsless as well just has a small piece of fabric and a belt uh, a uh, long flowing Fabio hair and a very stern look uh, he's holding a sword that has uh, got a shimmering light on it at the at the tip uh, and he's got a necklace made of bones and a skull. Uh, not, not a great deal of this happens in the movie, I have to say. Um, the naked lady is not on the Australian VHS. The naked lady is on the German DVD, which I also have,
5: ah. uh,
4: What I rewatched this afternoon. Um, and yeah, that's actually a little bit closer to what you get in the movie. Not not a deal closer. Um, that's very. Um, Very pronounced chest area, definitely on that cover. Um, But the background is what's really interesting in this one. She's holding the sword in the ocean or in in, in a body of water, which is is part of the film. But in the background, you've got some tremendous looking fighting. You've got a mace. uh, You've got these giant stonehenge kind of things behind her. But yeah, it's it's definitely uh, overselling the film. Uh, You just got to flip over both the VHS and the DVD to see what actually happens in the movie, and it's it's chalk and cheese.
3: Mm, Yeah, I remember because I think I mentioned the film to you, and then you you just produced this VHS, and I oh my god, I'd (laughs) never seen this VHS it must
1: yeah. must be a rare one because um it's one i because like i used to be a big tape collector it's not one that really popped up for me so especially like i said being released by uh, i thought it would be maybe sort of earlier sort of palace uh, early 90s palace era but no i'm shocked it was a an actual major studio put that out columbia <laughs> like you look at the cover and think oh this is
4: something that maybe cbl would have put out but yes yeah it, it, it's a columbia tristar and it's got hoyt's home video um yeah, a, a proper proper release. So the films did make their way to our shores somehow. It did, and and now that I'm looking at the spine, I've just realised on the spine is a photo version of that naked lady from the German DVD. Um, I've never actually put two and two together before on this, but yeah, there's um, she's she's not topless on this one because of VHS, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's the same stance and holding the sword, but she's got two um, guards behind her with shields that look like they're made from hubcaps. It's amazing.
3: Mm. And like all all these kind of video covers, they just promise so much, like lusty witches and wenches, Um, but kind of did they deliver? May, you know, maybe, yeah, sometimes, but still I still found them really entertaining. As I said, maybe it's because it was a simpler time. We played text-based games and stuff like that. So yeah. you bring home this video and it's, wow, you know. But how about you guys? Did you browse this kind of sword and sorcery in the video stores back in the day?
1: Yeah, I was always... um. I, like so I remember the covers vividly, um, j- just the artwork. Because like I said, I wasn't wasn't a huge fan of the genre when I was younger. But um, but yeah, I just have striking images of these this beautiful sort of poster um, painted poster art. Um, obviously now I, I realise the films are probably nothing like it. But yeah, I, I do recall them quite vividly.
3: And Tony, you, you you've worked in video stores. Did you loving lovingly arrange the Sword and Sorcery VHS.
0: Ah, uh, yes, I did. I remember vividly one title in particular. When I was around eight years old, in um in an old video store near where I live, um one one animated film really struck str- really attracted me, and uh, that was um the 1978 Ralph Bakshi's version of Lord of the Rings. That I can just visualize that video right now from Thorny MI and all that and that and that original poster art. That was I, I still think it's one of the greatest posters I've ever seen. Mm. And um yeah, but for some reason there was no fantasy section on the video stores. There was it always had to be in action. No doubt Simon, of course, he loved. And um yeah, like I I would love to have I would love to, for it to have its own um have its own own section in the video stores like i remember vividly the covers of Conan the Destroyer with um of course with the legendary Grace Jones on the cover as well she that was that's what really struck me as well as um of course Conan the Barbarian uh, fire and ice and of course there was a um there was an old mid 80s film from disney that came out um that Tim Burton was one of it was one of Tim Burton's early um early works. Um The Black Cauldron. That was one of the most that was a very dark film for his time. I remember the VHS for that one well. But yeah, for me, VHS with um with those with those um beautiful images, those paintings of um of as you said, Simon, muscly men with um with women with um with some with with body with some
3: Blind um,
0: think. Some, we- yeah, voluptuous, voluptuous women—that's the right word—and um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, that's all I remember. Like, but but from the for the main one for me, it's the 1978 Lord of the Rings, Conan the Destroyer, and Conan the Barbarian, of course, and Red Sonia with Brigitte Nielsen. That those images, those were the ones that always struck me. I've always loved those those images in the video store on VHS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they,
1: the um, I was about to say yeah, the, you just trigger, I, I remember they were mixed in, yeah, with action and and even horror. For some reason, now uh, my local video store had a lot of them in the horror section. For some reason, so I do vividly remember Fire and Ice, for whatever reason, sitting in the horror section. I, I just remember that that striking image. That's one that's you know just beautiful poster art. Mm. Roadshow tape. Definitely remember some being put in the sci-fi slash
4: fantasy section
1: in my local video store.
4: Yes, we have.
0: Yeah, that sci-fi definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: you're right, Simon. So mean, there was some in sci-fi as well. Yeah, they they used to at least at my local video store, they ha- they have a sign that would say sci-fi slash fantasy, and they just sort of grouped it all together. So you'd have Willow next to Star Wars.
3: Hmm. And I of course, you might have Avalon lurking in there. So oh, absolutely. You've just rewatched Avalon. What what were your impressions, Simon? Um. It's
4: uh, look, it's it's not Conan the Barbarian as the the VHS cover might suggest, but you no, know, it's um, it's a lot of fun, and I think that's what we're going to get out of this entire box set. Um, it feels more like a, a kids Saturday afternoon serial, except it's got nudity. Um, it's clearly just using you know his friends and and maybe people he's met at the pub to do lines and dress up um yeah and and all the dialogue is delivered like a non-actor would deliver like ye quest for avalon are like it's just over so much fun it's like you know laughing uh like laughing afternoon down at the commons or something and they just had a camera turned on that that's what you're getting out of watching avalon um you know rather than game of thrones it's more game of phoning it in i think with a lot of the dialogue but um you know the, the action's pretty cheap. Um, there's occasionally some, you know, intestines made from from like sausages thrown around. Um, there's some impressive sea monsters that are sort of Doctor Who grade. I quite like seeing them, and they speak with uh, you know hissing voices like this. It's just <laughs> it, it's great fun. Um, there's copious amounts of um, very bland looking sex scenes, um, and each time that there is one, and it's somewhat perverted. Each time it happens, there's this, um, it's in a cave, and there's a skull that's on the wall with the eye sockets carved out, and there's somebody watching through the eye sockets every sex scene. It's really, really creepy. I don't know why they did that. but (laughs) (laughs) So that was fun. It's got lots of good optical effects. Um, I'm not sure how they were achieved, but um, yeah, lots of lighting uh, flashes and things like that. Some very cheap beheadings where you see the sword rise up and then the next thing you see is somebody holding a head that's about half the size it should be, and it's grey. But, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it looks believable enough. Um, and there's a very short, brief moment towards the end of some very wobbly stop motion that looks like um, just sort of shimmering seaweed or something. It's it's quite crazy.
3: I've read but, it's meant to be a dragon.
4: The dragon? Yeah, you can't I, really tell what it is.
3: <laughs> I, I like it, though
4: yeah no yeah. It, it, it's really good and i hope we see some more stop motion through his other films
3: yeah i do too and i maybe in the extras we'll get to see how they did some of this you know kind yes. of what was behind the making of some of the effects they used um the movie is of course based on Arthurian uh, legend one of britain's most well-known and beloved traditional stories that of king arthur um, as you mentioned be under no illusion it is a micro budget film we have epic masterpieces like ben-hur excalibur conan and then we have michael murphy's avalon and it opens with a muscle-bound hero rescuing a beautiful maiden from being sacrificed by a band of druids and it becomes this kind of quest movie as this ragtag band of heroes seeks out Avalon, the final resting place of King Arthur, and along the way we encounter familiar characters like Merlin the Magician, the Lady of the Lake, and Morgana the evil sorceress. Um, There's the cursed slime monster that you mentioned, Simon, and so beautifully gave us a kind of taste of how he talks. (laughs) There's a gang of zombies, there's warrior women, there's all kinds of other foes, there's a gladiatorial tournament, mm-hmm. there's um, the sexy seductions that you mentioned. Um, and, yes, many of them. And the climax is ultimately that pretty cool stop-motion sequence with the, what is a monster, apparently a dragon. And, um, yeah, as you said, it looks like he has just commandeered A local theatre group or players or his friends for his film and the impression that I've always got from this movie is that he got some mates together and some ladies from the local pub and went down the park and shot a sword and sorcery film that's the impression I've always got but it, it really does look like a hell of a lot of fun and I've always been struck by the charm of this film I've watched it multiple times and it always makes me feel warm and happy because it does it's just what you said Simon it kind of reminds me of being a child and acting out some fantastic drama at lunchtime or in the backyard yeah and I just feel as though I'd like to jump into the movie and just become an evil sorceress for a day and flick my cape around and you know um it
4: it makes a look more achievable doesn't it
3: yeah it yeah and his films do have that kind of sense of that they're like a play or like a a production because they're quite obviously sets you know yeah things are quite obviously props
4: there's not sets either avalon seems to just be you know the park the the beach the cave it just sort of goes between the three, mm. uh, but what I really like uh, about it is that there's there's no time wasted. Like the, it goes at a fair clip. It's only set, it's 79 minutes, um, and it doesn't really get bogged down in boring dialogue. It just moves from set to set, action to action. So that's you, you stay entertained through the whole thing.
3: Yeah, definitely. That is something about his films. He he can keep the pace going. Um, Having said this, Michael Murphy, he does do a lot with very little. It has this kind of cool little synth score that sounds like it could be the backing to an 80s computer game or like a dungeon synth album. It has some good lighting and that stop motion animation sequence. It's also got a bit of humour, which is kind of character driven and in the dialogue. And it's very British humour So I do find this film really, really quite charming. And it appears in standard definition in this set. It's newly digitised and it's from Michael Murphy's personal tape Masters. So unfortunately, it's not one of the ones getting the 2K restoration, but I'm still really happy that it's on here. And it's basically why I bought this set or one of the reasons, yeah.
4: Yeah, I, I'm the same, um, which is really kind of funny that I'm buying this uh, over-the-top box set for the non-Blu-ray, but um, I can't have too
1: many copies of Avalon, that's for sure. Oh,
5: yeah.
1: <laughs> Amazing. It's funny, Suzanne, because we uh, um, you mentioned this film, I think it was um, before the set was announced, like I think we're out after the collectible fairs day, I think we're out at that at the pub. And uh, you you mentioned this movie. You said, "Oh, a film where you know they round up the local Sheilas and they went to the park, and then crazy timing like I think you know two months later this box set gets announced." So um, yeah, it, it intrigued me when you told me about it. I'm like, "Wow, that um, that sounds that sounds like something." So I'm, I'm yeah, very keen you, to finally see it.
3: <laughs> if you stand still long enough, I will tell you about this film. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it just sounds amazing. In a local park and like wow so uh yep i'm i'm sold
3: yeah um so any final thoughts about avalon before i move on simon
4: um i'll just read the quote from the back of the vhs which is in a land of illusion where you can't trust your senses you survive on instinct i think that's all we need to know
3: (laughs) great The other tale of British folklore that Michael Murphy revisited several times was the story of Tristan and I Sold, which is also linked with Arthurian legend. Originally, it's a medieval romance based on a traditional story about forbidden love between the Cornish knight Tristan and an Irish princess I sold. Tristan is meant to bring Isolde from Ireland to marry his uncle, the King of Cornwall, but on the way, the young couple ingest a love potion and begin an illicit love affair, thus creating a dangerous love triangle similar to that of King Arthur, Guinevere and Sir Lancelot in Arthurian legend. Tristan and I Sold's story was eventually merged into the Arthurian stories, with Sir Tristan becoming a Knight of the Round Table. The Romance of the Grail, written in 13th century France, cemented the two into Arthurian legend by including it. And this text would become the basis for the very important Thomas Mallory, uh, 15th century Arthurian compilation, La Morte d'Arthur, from which we gain most of our understanding of the legends today and why we associate Tristan and I Sold now with Arthurian legend. And there have been several film adaptations over the years, most notably the beautiful period drama Tristan and I Sold from 2006, directed by Kevin Reynolds, who of course directed robin hood prince of thieves and that also has ridley scott getting a producer credit has anyone seen that
0: yes i have i really enjoyed that that version of um tristan and sold
3: yeah it's just beautiful
5: yeah I have
2: not seen it but i do remember seeing a poster of it when i walked into a uh, shopping center that's all i know from that film Mm -hmm. apart from it has Jess Franco uh what's jess franco james franco yes yeah it's a very
3: beautiful film
1: i need to Um, see it's one i haven't seen i know of it i never got around to seeing it so yeah
3: it's, it's quite underrated film i highly recommend it um We also have adaptations like the controversial, The Eternal Return from 1943, written by Jean Cocteau. We also have Love Spell from 1981, starring a very young Kate Mulgrew, who is of course best known as Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager, and she stars alongside Richard Burton. And Michael Murphy also made a trilogy of Tristan and I Sold films, beginning in 1970 with Tristan and I Sold, followed in 1986 by Legend of the Hero, and Tristan in 1999. Uh, And two versions of that are included in this set, as well as the first two films in his trilogy. And these are among the unseen highlights for me that I'm really looking forward to checking out because it's such a little adapted story and it's a very beautiful story. Um, I'm unsure if they'll be more historical or more sword and sorcery, but I just can't wait to see them. And when I I read that they were in there, I was, yep, sold as well. You had me at Avalon, but then I read this. Are you guys interested in his um, this trilogy?
4: Certainly sounds interesting. I really am not familiar with that, uh, those works. so But um, I'm willing to give it a go for sure.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I like to see his approach on the material, just um, based on what I've heard from Avalon. So, yeah, look, I'll, I'll like I said, I'll, I'll be seeing everything in this set. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how he tackles it.
5: Mm.
3: Michael Murphy also loves to visit the legendary fabled lost city of Atlantis with Atlantis City of Sin in 1967 of which we only get fragments of this lost film unfortunately but the main event is 1991's Atlantis another micro budget sword and sorcery marvel which is receiving a new 2k restoration and I do love a good atlantis film and you are in for a gem there
0: was a vast continent covering what is now the atlantic ocean this was the lost land of atlantis and now that i have the blood crystal my powers could be beyond your comprehension this woman
5: you see what is she to do with me
0: when sartor finds her you will be fulfilled
3: This is supposed to be a civilized world. This is barbaric.
0: Ah. Do you know what that is? You know what we eat. I saw the dish on How
3: lucky I am not to have to eat human flesh. Sarita! do you not trust the master?
0: No more
4: than I trust you. Show yourself, child of the fire crystal.
3: It's not all that is in your mind. With this one. How about you, Simon? Are you looking forward to this one? And what's your favourite Atlantis film?
4: Yeah, I've got a feeling this might be one of the the first of the 2K remasters I'm going to put on. Um, But, like... I haven't seen a huge amount of Atlantis films, but the one I have seen, well, I've seen a couple that I can talk about, but Raiders of Atlantis or, or Atlantis Interceptors has got to be the real winner. Um, and we now finally have a <laughs> glorious Blu-ray from um, from Severin on that one. Um, but Raiders, Raiders still makes very little sense each time I watch it. it. It doesn't know if it's post-apocalyptic. It doesn't know if it's a fantasy film. It doesn't really know what it is. But I think that that, that all ends up working to make a fun film, a little bit like Conquest. It doesn't really know what flavor it is. But if you've not seen Raiders of Atlantis, that's Christopher Connolly in his, his sort of twilight years. Um, and, and that's funny how with, with all these, these types of films, it, it, it's a lot of actors from the 60s and the 70s, and I've never seen their more famous films. I just know them for the things they did in the Philippines financed by Italians. Um, and yeah you know, he's from Cobra Mission and he's in Strike Commando, and now he's in yeah Raiders of Atlantis. but that that one's got everything you could possibly want in a film that involves Atlantis. It's got uh, bikers that look like they belong in Judas Priest. It's got the violence, it's got weird um, sci-fi elements of uh, going into Atlantis itself. Uh, yeah, Raiders has got to be got to be the uh, the winner for me.
3: Mm, and i believe that michael murphy's atlantis is possibly one of uh, the crowning achievements in his filmography so he's staged the epic fall of atlantis on zero dollars and manages to deliver a fairly action-packed adventure with the destruction of atlantis actually reminiscent of scenes from 1913's silent the fall of pompeii or when samson destroys the temple in 1949 Samson and Delilah and I get the feeling that he kind of grew up watching these films and worked out how can I make an epic fall of Atlantis and it's cut really quickly there's like screaming faces there's falling foam painted as rocks I don't know there's sawdust and all kinds of stuff going everywhere and it's actually like I give him total credit for pulling this off, you know on such a budget. Like he definitely has an idea of how to do this, which I think he's learned from these older films. So we get this epic destruction of the city of Atlantis. We also have a reptilian high priest who some people have dubbed asparagus head, but his um his body makeup and his you know special <laughs> effects. Yeah, makeup and prosthetics is actually like pretty good. Like it's good. Like there's scenes where he kind of, you know, is has his chest exposed and he's like this reptile guy. It's not just the rubber suit. It's it's makeup. And we also have the Queen of Atlantis, who is also the Queen of Side boob. Uh, she and her Amazonian female bodyguard both like. Big eighties hair. They like slabs of frosty <laughs> eyeshadow and outfits made of sheer curtains and tin foils. So Atlantis is super stylish, circa, you know, eighties, even though this was, I don't know, came out in nineteen ninety 1990 or nineteen ninety one. Our reptilian overlord is probably most likely influenced by robert e howard's short story the shadow kingdom published in a 1929 edition of weird tales magazine his subterranean dwelling shape-shifting mind controlling reptilian men drew on theosophical writings particularly those of madame Blavatsky's secret doctrine from 1888 which described the lost worlds of atlantis and lemuria as being once ruled by a race of dragon men and this is actually thought to be the origins of our modern day lizard people conspiracy theories as well and michael murphy incorporates this into his atlantis his atlantis also features the mythical crystal skull which was more recently revisited in 2008's indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull These allegedly ancient crystal skulls were claimed to be artifacts of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican civilizations, particularly the Aztecs and the Mayans, and are reported to have supernatural, even miraculous healing properties. They first emerged in the 19th century with the huge interest in archaeology and ancient artifacts and became a staple of the New Age movement, often touted as being one of the world's greatest unsolved mysteries. They also became a really popular feature of science fiction with, um, but with modern scientific research, they've actually been dated to the 19th century as hoaxes and bogus artifacts. So the mystical crystal skull myth may have sadly been busted, but this hasn't stopped the myth from continuing or appearing in fiction and film like this film Uh, we also have in the film gore lots of scantily clad kind of homoerotic scenes of men wrestling for very prolonged periods and even a really excellent stomach bursting episode and as far as this kind of um crazy bonkers trashy cinema goes this is yeah, it's excellent, and Simon, you're going to love it.
4: That sounds really, really up my alley. Um, you, you you had me at um, Side Boob, but you, you completely sold me at explosions. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's going to be the first one on it.
3: Yeah, I recommend. And um, the next category we have in this box set is, of course, Magic. And magic goes hand in hand with the sword and sorcery genre and all of the films that we've mentioned feature elements of magic from wizards and sorcerers um, of Arthurian legend to the love potion in Tristan and I sold the magic crystals of Atlantis, but Michael Murphy also explores distinctly British occult traditions. He frequently incorporates druids, like in the opening scene of Avalon, where the druids try to make a blood sacrifice of the maiden. Druids appear again in the occult horror film Invitation to Hell from 1982, where a druid cult kidnaps a young virgin to sacrifice her for the spring equinox. Pagan themes are again explored in Murphy's 1995 horror adaptation of The Rite of Spring, which is very loosely based on the 1913 ballet and orchestral work by Russian composer Igor Stravinsky, which takes the audience through a series of pagan rites which culminate in the great sacrificial dance. But Michael Murphy's made this kind of modern a cult thriller version of this. We know very little about who the Druids actually were, as they never kept written records. They're usually associated with Britain, but they also existed throughout Europe. And what we do know of the Druids comes from Roman accounts, predominantly written by Julius Caesar and the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus who wrote the Bibliotheca Historica. These authors' accounts detail the more horrific and brutal elements that we associate with Druids, such as human sacrifice, and the first mentions of the wicker man, the great human-shaped effigy used for sacrifice by fire, made famous, of course, in the 1973 movie, The Wicker Man, one of the most important films about occult britain along with the blood on satan's claw from 1971 and michael murphy in similar ways imbues an idyllic pastoral view of britain with horrific elements of the pagan past but it has to be remembered that the romans had an ulterior motive to depicting the druids as barbaric because the power of the druids um as their society's religious and community leaders made them a big threat to Roman rule. So it was in Rome's best interest to create a poor public image of them in order to eventually outlaw and eradicate them. But these Roman accounts of the Druids are what has fueled the vision of pagans and Druids in horror film and literature. It's a vision significantly portrayed in the occult thriller fiction of Dennis Wheatley, and it made him one of the world's best-selling authors from the 1930s through to the 1960s. And Michael Murphy's occult horror seems distinctly influenced by the work of Dennis Wheatley, who pretty much created the template for this subgenre by studying Roman and medieval accounts of paganism and witchcraft. His works to The Devil A Daughter and The Devil Rides Out were famously adapted into films by Hammer Horror. And, Tony, I know you're a big fan of these Dennis Wheatley Hammer Horror adaptations. What are some of your favourite occult horrors? Oh,
0: boy. Uh, where do we begin? Um, yeah, definitely The Devil Rides Out. and um, But I do love the book. Um, to The Devil, or Daughter, but because The Hammer film is completely different to the novel, which I have read recently, I did love the book of that one, but for the movies, definitely um, The Devil Rides Out, and as you said, The Wicker Man, Blood and Satan's Claw, there's just so many. Uh, Oh boy, where to begin?
3: Anyone else got a favourite occult horror? John?
0: Uh, I guess you could say
1: tombs of the blind dead as well um <laughs> all right
3: ryan an occult horror
1: an occult horror um
3: or satanic horror or satanic thriller
2: what can i do like the uh it's just like the old school suspiria original suspiria it's about witches um i guess you could probably say the evil Dead. There's one, um, the one of the recent one, Ben Wheatley's Kill List, which is mm. a great film. Great one. Um, a cult, and another old, um, newish film, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. I didn't mind. Mm. Um, occult horror, In the Mouth of Madness, is that a cult horror? Mm.
1: To a degree, yes. Yeah. A film, uh... a little.
3: How about you, Simon? An occult thriller, an occult horror.
4: Well, I mean, I've watched The Exorcist more times than you can count. But um, a modern film that I really, really liked—I've watched a few times now. Uh, 2015's The Witch. I think <clears> that <throat> really nailed it. Oh, that's uh, beautiful. Yeah, it's it's very well done. I like the way that it's um, it, the the color is so subdued in the film that the whole thing looks wet and damp, like it's. It's a very dark-filmed film, and it's a dark-feeling film. I think um, they really nailed the the whole feeling of that movie um, in that time period. It's quite believable. Um, and it does help to watch it with the subtitles on. I've learned the second time through. You pick a few things up. The Ye the English is a little bit tough. Um, so I do recommend watching with the subs. But, yeah, I really enjoyed The Witch.
3: Hmm. And that, sorry John
1: I would say that film sorry I saw it in the U.S. a few years ago on film in the U.S. it was called uh, Alucardra. Alu... Alucardra. Alucardra I think it is Alucardra, Alucardra yeah yeah that's, Alucardra, I couldn't yeah. think for think life of me the name of it I was on a mental book, excuse me yeah I saw that on film in um on the U.S. and uh, yeah it's 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 one of my favorites I was blown away by
4: it it's a really good one I only watched it uh about two weeks ago, for the first time.
5: Um, oh, really?
4: Yeah. Well, the chances. <laughs> it, like, I'll dig out this old mondo macabre. I haven't put this one on before. And yeah, you, yeah. You're right. It's it's quite crazy.
1: Um, it just gets it's, more and more demented as it goes it's, on. It's bonkers. Yeah. you literally. Yeah. So, uh, and that's one that needs an upgrade as well. But yes, that was a, that was pretty amazing that film. Mm.
3: And Dennis Wheatley, his kind of template for the occult horror was the modern world with these, uh, you know, occult societies or Satanists working, you know, to create evil or chaos or rule the world. And I love The Omen, which is, of course, totally Mm -hmm. um, in this template, Rosemary's Baby, absolutely in this kind of Dennis Wheatley realm and a more modern one, The Ninth Gate, which is one of my favourite horror thriller films. They're all definitely in that style of the kind of Dennis Wheatley occult thriller horrors and his fiction revived centuries-old misinformation and misconceptions about witchcraft and the occult. Eventually they merged into public consciousness, influencing beliefs still upheld about the threats of Satanism and secret cults and societies, and this may have contributed in some way to the Satanic Panic, which followed from the 70s onward. But parallel to Wheatley's occult horror, Britain was the home of a new occult revival that had gained popularity from the 19th century with people reviving and practicing various forms of occultism from Spiritualism to Neo-Paganism, Neo-Druidry and Wicca. Several significant figures of occult Britain include Alastair Crowley, one of the most famous, Gerald Gardner, the father of modern Wicca and his pupil Raymond Buckland, Arthur Edward Waite, who devised the most famous modern tarot deck and Pamela Coleman Smith, who illustrated it, There was author Dion Fortune and many, many more. Michael Murphy made his own satanic thriller, Moonchild, not to be confused with the other Moonchild that came out in 1989, Mm -hmm. featuring Dead Can Dance frontwoman Lisa Gerard. Michael Murphy's Moonchild again centres around human sacrifice, with our young beauty being chosen as the Moonchild Of course, Moonchild was a 1917 book written by Alastair Crowley. In his work, the Moonchild is an ethereal being with which a woman is impregnated by a white wizard or magician, sorry, rather, but uh, he is warring with a black magician. Eventually, the young woman must decide which side to take. The work also describes various theories of modern magical practice and is considered a really important work of occult literature. So the magic of Michael Murphy's films draws from this rich tradition of occultism in Britain and exists in a melting pot of British occult identity from the age old magic of myth and legends to um, the the Druids, the occult revival with characters like Alastair Crowley, as well as the sensational world of Dennis Wheatley and Hammer Horror. And the third category we have is mutilation, which is of course um, his micro budget horror of which I must admit, I know very little, but I know there's people out there who really dig their micro-horror and Murphy does offer some splatter. Uh, Simon, I know you're really looking forward to the no-budget post-apocalyptic film in this set death, Ron, aren't you?
4: Yeah, absolutely, I love post-apocalyptic movies, that's um, that's definitely a, an itch that I like to scratch.
3: And what's some of your favourites of the post-apocalyptic trash pile? <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, look, it's back to Roger Corman again, particularly the films that um, Sirio uh, H. Santiago uh, shot for him in the Philippines. Um, they, they're all absolutely fantastic rip-offs of Mad Max 2. So with Equalizer 2000 has got to be my favourite, um, with Richard Norton, um, and an amazingly large gun that, depending on which cover you look at, it's, it's bigger than the last. It's an astounding film, Um, with a very early Robert Patrick from Terminator 2. He did a couple of films in the Philippines in the 80s before uh, making it big as uh, the T-1000 in in 1991, I think that was. Um, But the footage in Equalizer 2000, that all comes from uh, another serial film called Striker, which is his first post-apocalyptic film. And then he did Wheels of Fire, uh Bloodfist 2050 and they all use the same key bits of footage so if you sit down and marathon them you you've you've seen half the film already each time it's it's great fun I <laughs> really love those ones
3: cool so what are you guys looking forward to in the box set is there anything particularly that piques your interest is it the sword and sorcery is it the horror, is it the splatter, is it the satanic thrillers? Tiny.
0: Basically everything, all those all those three subgenres, you know, magic, myth and mutilation, we've seen I've seen so many of these movies, but with these um Michael J. Murphy micro budget films, I'm really intrigued to see it. Like, um, I was sold on the box set before knowing the movie, just judging by the cover of the Invitation to Hell poster. That that's that just sold me. And um, I am really excited to check out all these films. It's, it's, gonna be some kind, it's definitely going to be an experience.
3: John, do you have any top picks from this box?
1: Yeah, um, it's a box that like you said earlier this uh, tony there's so much in here so much variety um i guess more of yeah, the occult stuff has me interested like um like Moonchild. like i said i was confused when it was announced because i was getting mixed up with the spanish film Moonchild, which is not from the same year
3: um mm, it but, is uh, confusing
1: yeah but i'm keen to see his version uh which which you know obviously being murphy would be fascinating um yeah like i, said, I do like post pox so um obviously Um, death run is one i really want to see i saw some clips of it on youtube and it looks like a like a british trauma film it's amazing from what i saw um i was able to find and watch uh two of his films briefly because they're pretty short they're only about you know 70 minutes uh there was one called bloodstream from 85 and that's actually like a satire on the movie industry where basically um some guy gets ripped off by his video distributor and decides to go on a come back on set in a, in the costume and kill everyone um which is brilliant absolutely i just watched that and had a, had a ball and that's more of the splatter side that one
3: how's and the splatter in it does it have lots of splatter or
1: it's good yeah it has lots of splatter um some good deaths i'll say that um uh a lot lot of good uh good thick red red dye it looks great <laughs> um that was hilarious that one and the other one i watched briefly was um I was getting really confused because I couldn't find it on the set, but it goes under the name Quallen uh, from 1983. Uh, the other name was called The Hereafter, was the one that I saw it under, um, which was a um, uh, just a rip on on YouTube. And uh, it's a really interesting film, uh, more of like a because the cover it looks like a zombie film, but it's not. It's actually a, a drama, tension in these people in this this country mansion and all these. Love affairs going on and, and backstabbing and um and, and there is a zombie per se, but it's not what you think it is when you see the film. I don't want to spoil it. But um it, it was just a really good sort of like um drama that he did. So um yeah, there's just so much variety in this box and like and, and obviously the big one is Invitation to Hell. I really want to see that one. That one looks great. Uh, just that cover art so striking. So um yeah, there's like so I'm just so excited for the set. There's so many films I'm i can not wait to dive into. And obviously what you guys describe with the sword and sorcery ones it, they're big ones that I want to get into as well. So yeah, it's, it, it, all sounds amazing.
3: And Ryan, are you going for splatter sword and sorcery?
2: Uh, I'm going to go more towards the, uh, uh, sword and sorcery and mythological, like post-apocalypse stuff, to be honest. Um, Yeah. Because I see, like, so much, like, low-budget Splatter that I'm just, like, I kind of want something a bit different. And I haven't seen, like, a lot of Corman's like, Sword and Sorcery stuff. Um, so I think I'd want to try and uh, go to that because, I don't know, sometimes I just think um the low-budget, like, I guess futuristic stuff can be done with so much, with so much more. Because in mm-hmm. the Splatter stuff, is like, yeah, hey, just put some blood on it. But you know, like in those um mythological play- ones and apocalyptic ones are just like getting people dressed up as um, you know, as you said, Simon Judas Priest, um, backing vocalists <laughs> and all that, um <laughs> backing dancers yeah, yeah. for yeah. Rob Halford <laughs> that he founded a club, you know. So I think I'll be going for those ones. But I'll watch everything. Fuck it.
3: Simon, your top picks?
2: Well, Death Run was
4: going to be up there, um, and it still is. And uh, Invitation to Hell, like everyone else is saying, the the cover-out on here, despite the movie only being 50 minutes or so, that will probably go on pretty early on. But um, you really, really sold me on Atlantis. So (laughs) it's kind of I
3: I just know you, and I know you're going to love it. You're going to love it just as much as I did. I'm, I'm
4: taking that recommendation as well. But I'm actually kind of curious about these very last films um particularly the one that's called Necros Isle of the Dead 2014 mm. I'm very curious to see what he was like so late so i mean I've, I've got now you know a little bit of experience in his 80s work but what was he like with Necros i'm kind of expecting something like you know Bruno Mattei coming back in the 2000s for for his cannibal films
1: i'm expecting something along those lines so we will see. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated about that too, Simon. I was having a look, and if I'm reading this right, they were shot on film those last really? titles, because because it, oh, it's saying good. that they were because it's saying that they were restored from film elements, which yeah. kind of hey, really? amazes me. Yeah,
2: that's good. Mate. Then that means it's not like those are uh, Uli Lamel shot on video um, uh-huh. <laughs> serial killer films.
3: Oh, I've not been sucked that. in by them. <laughs>
2: Standard <laughs> yeah.
1: DV.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, classic stuff.
4: <laughs> we'll see how Necros goes. <laughs> yep. Oh my.
3: Cool. Well, you'll most commonly find references to Michael Murphy's films in inverted commas bad movie lists or described with adjectives like crap. But I, I'll ask the question, what makes a movie bad? does no budget make a movie automatically bad? Because people spend tens of millions of dollars and still end up with rubbish movies. So I asked the question, what is worse? So I'll pass it over again to you guys. What makes a bad movie? And if a movie is considered bad yet is still entertaining, is there such a thing as a bad movie?
2: I think – I've been thinking about this so much. I think uh, – no one goes out to make a bad film, straight. Out. Everyone just doesn't – you don't go out to make a bad film. Sometimes that just happens. But I think the big – if you got – if I don't, like, try and knock on um people that don't have a budget because, like, you're just working with whatever you got. So, like, I give you props for doing whatever you can. But I always – think that like if you have a big budget and it's a big Hollywood studio production and it's fucking shit and it doesn't entertain you it doesn't do anything for you then that is what I consider a bad film like like an actual production company putting money into a film and you're just not getting anything out of it that's what I think a bad film is
3: yeah I tend to agree Simon.
4: yeah I I'm in the same boat the, you can sum up how I feel about A movie easily in three words, which is don't be boring. If you're boring, you're bad. Mm. Otherwise, it's good. It's as simple as that. I don't think there's really so much in the you know so bad it's good vein. I mean you can you can laugh at a film when you're not meant to be laughing, and I suppose you call that so bad it's good. But for me, as long as you're not boring, then you've succeeded. Doesn't matter if you spend a dollar or a million.
3: You have a deep love for what you dub trash. So, you know, and I say very affectionately, dub trash. What is the appeal and love for these kind of low budget like films?
4: I think um, a lot of the time there's a freedom a lot of the time, it's it's a director who's also a writer, who's also a producer, and he's free or she is free to just make something, and there's not tied down to a big studio system or expectations of um, you know meeting a budget or whatever. Like really good example, I think, um, is the film um, Mutilations uh, by Larry Thomas from 1987. That that's such a great example of a of a low or micro budget horror that just one one guy is responsible for so much of it, and by most definitions, people will say that's a bad movie because the actors are not good and you know, the the effects are ho hum and there's a lot of just you know poor quality sets and things like that. But I was entertained. It's 70 minutes long. It's campy. It's about an alien invasion in a backwater town and it's got claymation creatures. Why would that be bad? So yeah,
1: just don't be boring.
3: Good advice. How about you, John?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with Simon. My golden rule is, yeah, the biggest sin for a movie is to be boring and uh, I think that you can, it doesn't matter on the budget, if if it entertains, it entertains and um, I think with these films, that there is a passion, and even like I said, if it's not particularly great in terms of whatever production or or um, or acting, there's a fascination factor to it that keeps you engaged. Just how how much passion these filmmakers put into it, because I mean now, like I said, um, films are looked upon as as product essentially. I mean, look at the recent HBO Max thing. I mean, essentially, films are product, and and we have it's a tax write off. Let's just get rid of it. It's just disposable content. And and back then there was an art form to it, and there's an extreme passion. Just looking at um, what you've said, Suzanne, about all, like that, the passion went into these films, and his love for various mythology and uh, and occult, and whatnot, um, it shows. And so, yeah, as long as, like I said, as long as it's um, the energy and the spirit is there, I'll 100 percent be on board. And uh, and like I said, a lot of the films we love, the so-called trash ones, uh, are the ones that have that that sort of energy and, and and passion put into them. So yeah, like I said, just as long as it's um, you know they make an effort, and uh, there is a love and and entertainment factor to it. I'm I'm 100% on board, and that can be doesn't matter on the budget as long as it it's well done. And um yeah, so uh, that's how I kind of see things. So this box set looks yeah perfect for that.
3: And Tony.
0: Oh, I can go on about bad films. um <laughs> You love bad films. I, you love uh, a bad I, film. Can... I adore bad movies um, but for me um as you said John and Simon the passion in the project that you're working on even if it's a bad even if it turns out bad it's entertaining doesn't matter doesn't matter of the budget doesn't matter mm-hmm. of um of the size of the budget I should say like to me the king of bad movie making will always be Ed Wood is or like His films are so cheap, so, so low budget. But the main thing is he, he cared for his product. Even though it didn't turn out perfect, it is, they are always entertaining and never boring. And, um, but that lately with, with, with more modern films, they prefer style over substance and, um, like some bad movies recently of, of modern times, of, of course, you know, Suzanne and, and myself, we are obsessed with the movie Showgirls, and that's considered one of the worst films ever made. But we adore it. We absolutely love it. And there is one bad film that a lot of people hate, but i got to say, I have a soft spot for. <laughs> um, that's, um, I'm going to be ashamed to say this, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it, I don't care. It's um, Battlefield Earth. I find that... <laughs> Hey. For, some, for some reason I find it hilariously entertaining. I know it's horrendous. And I have read the book, and the book is far better than the movie. But the uh, but yeah, Battlefield Earth was always one that, that really entertained me. I know it's awful, but it was fun. But um, but yeah, for me, as long as they're entertaining and never boring, as you said, Simon and John, can't go wrong with a bad film like that.
3: Mm, It's easy to laugh at these films or mock them and write them off um, or add them to quotes, bad movie lists, but you really have to admire Michael Murphy's tenacity. And it begs the question, should we encourage independent creativity or dismiss it in this way by just adding it again and again to these kind of, bad movie lists, even though people do say that affectionately. Um, I see him as being one of these people who had a compulsion to create. And to be a filmmaker, you have to make films after all. Mm. And he obviously wasn't going to wait around in hope of funding or for official industry channels. So he just made films with whatever he had available and I I admire that too. And I love most of all, and Ryan touched on this, I love that he made sword and sorcery films on no money because, yeah, Ryan said it, easy to splutter around some ketchup, make a micro-budget horror film, it's the go-to. But to conceive that you can make something historical with special effects, um, costumes sets like most people would write that off as overly ambitious but he totally did it and just imagine him making all these set pieces there's like i don't know how they're done i'm hoping we see a bit of this in the extras but i'm sure there's like paper mache painted foam like it's real um you know theater kind of set painting set creating this really uh tactile creating of sets and costumes and probably the you know actors did their own makeup and also as far as sword and sorcery films go the michael murphy movies that i have seen are really well paced and simon mentioned this earlier they aren't slow like some some movies are and um They're actually even sometimes less muddled than even some of the Roger Corman sword and sorcery films. They're quite action-packed with some prompt editing, so they rarely get bogged down or drag. There's also lots of care taken, I think, with the acting. So there are some good kind of character actors that come out, especially in Atlantis. They put a lot of love into the costumes, obviously, sets, effects and music, even though they are done on a minimal budget. And like John said, there are lots of ideas behind Michael Murphy's films as well. And I've talked a bit about these possible inspirations and themes that I've seen running through his work. I don't know much about him, Again, I'm really looking forward to discovering more about him through this set and the extras, but he wasn't just pumping out tits and ass boys' fantasy fantasies like Roger Corman. You get the feeling he had a real love for these subjects, the myth, magic and mutilation, and he was somehow compelled to keep making these types of films because he had an actual passion about what he was doing and a love for these kinds of stories. And I, I get the feeling that if he had something more to work with in terms of budget, he could have probably made some pretty decent films. I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen all his films. Um, I don't know about them much, but maybe we'll find out why he never did get that kind of funding to make some bigger budget films maybe he just wanted to be entirely creative and you know in control of his own creative process i don't know but um yeah i think the extras will shed a lot of light about these films who he is and we'll get to hear in his own words as well about his motivation and how he made these films which i think is just invaluable so yeah, I'll hand it over to you guys for some final thoughts.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm excited for the set. Like I said, he never he never seemed to give up this this director, and and it's fascinating. That's why I want to know more about him. So I'm very excited for the set because um, even to his final days, he was directing films and. You know, there's a lot of low-budget filmmakers out there that, you know, they've they made about a handful of films and they then they vanished and went off and did, you know, real estate or something. They got into another industry. They just left the film industry. But, I mean, this guy just persisted right until his final days. Like he would not stop making films, even if they were no budget. It, like I said, Suzanne, he had a passion and um, is is a fascinating figure. And I think that's why this this story needs to be told in a box set because I think he is a uh, a great icon that that deserves um a bit of recognition so um you know it's people say it's out of character but i don't think so i think you're right it's it's very british and that kind of fits perfectly in indicators wheelhouse in regards to sort of british cinema and and, and those sort of themes so yeah I, I can't wait for the set but uh yeah he's he's a fascinating character definitely definitely was
2: it's funny when people say it's out of character, and I like always refer back to like <laughs> right when Indicators started. Like the first four like releases was John Carpenter's Vampires, Ghosts of Mars, Guess Who's Coming to Get Dinner, and um, To Sir with Love, which is the fucking broadest section of films you could ever release right <laughs> at the start. And it should like indicate the, the like someone with just one brainstem of like what they're going to do in the future. Because people said the same thing about the Norman J. Warren box set and like, Irreversible. And it's like, this is not like them. I'm like, they released Ghost of Mars. I'm like, shut the fuck <laughs> up.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, no, it's, it's about the body the double, but
2: still, like, yeah, early on.
1: Yeah, no, and, and once again, because they came from great directors and it's about the director themselves and they're more or less seen works. So, you know, yeah. that's the great thing about Indicator. And, and you're right, the, this fits perfectly with the Nor- Norman J. Warren box together because they're both... British directors that that you know made some uh, you know independent films and just kept going and going. So um, yeah, it's uh, I think it would make a nice companion to that box set. For I
4: think sure. be a extra zero or two on the budget of uh, the, the, the films in the bloody terror box set. But, um, <laughs> but for me, it's just all it's all coming full circle. I've picked up this random VHS, you know, seven eight years ago, didn't know who the director was, and now Indicators releasing. You know, they've got a, they've got the faith to release 6,000 units of a box set of this largely unknown British director, I, I have to believe I'm going to enjoy the films.
2: They're probably looking at the sales too of um, maybe Severance um, box sets of like Al Adamson and, mm-hmm. um, what's it, a Sheckler or whatever the other guys are too.
1: Yeah, well, they sold out. The, the yeah. Al Adamson sold out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this so, will be like a good companion piece for those uh, yeah. films for sure. there
1: there is a demand for it, definitely. And look, to be honest, like Al Adamson, like I, I never heard of Al Adamson really until that box set. Uh, I heard of some of his films, but you know, it's just mm. an example of the, the cult around the the figure, the, the director it really does sell the set. So um yeah, hopefully people will take a chance with this, and um, yeah, yeah it, it goes well for them because there's a lot of effort put into this set.
3: Yeah, over 34 hours worth of film content.
2: I can do it in a day. <laughs> <laughs> Smash it out. Yeah, watch me. Uh, Two TVs going at the same time, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And it, it just like, this is the stuff that gets me excited about, you know, Blu-rays and labels, because stuff we've never seen, That—that's the that's the beauty of, like, these boutique labels. But, you know, if you're releasing a common film for the, for the tenth time on home video it's like you know on on you know it just had like a blu-ray last year now they're doing a 4k it's like well you know just give us something adventurous and this is adventurous very adventurous it is
3: it is adventurous both in the product and in terms of the themes and content and if you told me like six months ago when i was lovingly caressing simon's avalon vhs tapes that this <laughs> box set would have been happening i would never would have believed you
4: it's really a testament to what i've been saying on my bit of a plug a YouTube, my youtube channel uh in every second video i do about movies and that we're, we're in another like the second golden age of home media right now I, nobody could have told me five years ago i'd have a blu-ray of robo war but here we are <laughs> um, it's just absolutely crazy, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this box set, and it's, it's really good that indicators putting all the love into it. They could have just done you know a, a smaller release of just a couple of the films, but no, they're going, they're going all in on this. It's gonna be good everything.
3: All, all or nothing,
0: <laughs> All or nothing. Yeah, well, they're basically showing one man's passion for what he loves doing, like um whatever genre. It's basically one man's passion, and and of course, Indicator are proud to to show it off and proud to release his passion, which is fantastic. And I can't wait for it. It's going to be amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, cool. Um, wow. Well, I guess um, is there, is there anything else, Suzanne, on on him? Uh, I think
5: all talked now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you Susan that was amazing wow um, yeah there was a lot I learned on on Michael J Murphy I had no idea about so uh yes thank you for your your research as always it's 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 fascinating stuff um, so yeah uh, very keen for the set when it comes out um look, I guess that's about it there's um just very quickly there was a, a newsletter uh, Kendall do you want to quickly tell us what was in the newsletter what was
2: yeah, do you want me to read the, all of it? I can.
1: Smash uh, it out. Yeah, if you want to smash it out, let's
2: Back and let's go, folks. All right, here we go. Blah blah blah. Yeah, mythical. What we just talked about. Past two hours. Get on it, people. Um, eight new UK standards. Uh, all from the Columbia Noir two because of the box it's sold out. Mm-hmm. So the films are framed. Seven uh, Eleven, Ocean Drive, The Mob Affair in Trinidad. Uh, tight spot murder by contract and we've got two others the snake pit and secret ceremony they're all standard editions uh here we go the july uk editions update owing to a slight production delay we will be unable to ship direct orders for our four uk july editions with our customary pre-release date time timeliness It it is currently looking likely that we'll be able to ship direct orders next week, i.e. the week between the 25th of July, which was last month, so it doesn't really matter anymore. Um, uh, Please note, release date for these tiles and all other retailers have shipped to the 1st of August, and thus there will be a minor delay everywhere. Uh, Direct orders from our website are still on track to be filled the soonest, and pre-orders of Creatures the World Forgot. Will arrive with a previously unannounced set of exclusive art cards, not to be found elsewhere. And I have them; they're very lovely, very nice to look at. Um, I think all you guys got them as well. Yeah. Yes. Simon, did you get creatures? I did not. I probably should.
3: Oh, I did.
2: Yeah, no. it, um, it's a yeah. good, it's a good fun like grunty film. Everyone just if there's, grunts and if there's a, another it.
3: thing that I like apart from sword and sorcery, it's like dinosaur and caveman films.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, this is a good one too. Good fun. Um, so yeah, five for forty still continues on. I feel like that's never going to end. Um, low stock update. Very low stock. We've got irreversible, which is probably the big box. Uh, Take a Girl Like You and the Triple Echo UK edition. Uh, The low stock is Town on Trial, 20th Century, The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn, Time Without Pity, Someone to Watch Over Me, The Pillow Book and Devil in a Blue Dress. And our secret little uh, photo is a film called The Man Who Had Power Over Women. It's from 1970. It's a comedy Um, director John Krish, who, what else did this man do? Unearthly stranger. Give us some more. Um, friend of foe, the wild affair, made a film called Jesus. Um, (laughs) made a film called captured with, which BFI, um, released. Um, unearthly stranger. Yeah. I have no idea Mm. of any of these films, but, um, yeah, we're releasing one of his films, so I'll be interested to check that out. Uh, Definitely. I think that's it. Uh, visit our website and yeah, wonderful. Definitely. And awesome. um, the prices have gone down for me. I think the VAT's gone off it or something.
1: Yes. Yeah. When you order it, you do get the VAT off if you're outside the UK. Yeah. The yeah. Because. Yeah. I was
2: just like, look, on the page, and I just saw the price. I'm just like, that used to be like $65 or something. Why is it like 58 bucks <laughs> now? I'm like confused. So, yeah, if you're outside of the UK, the VAT has kind of like gone off the prices, so they dropped a little. Yep. So, yeah. Jump on it, folks. I think that's all the newsletter time we have.
1: Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Ryan. And and just a quick note: the box set originally was uh, planned for Halloween, I think October, but because they were just they're still working on it so many extras, it has been pushed back until November. The um, Michael J. Murphy box. So uh, yeah, I prefer to wait and get a perfect set than rush it out the door and have a replacement program <clears throat> like certain other labels.
5: Uh,
1: <laughs> so. so yeah. uh, yes Uh, and then we have a replacement program email go out no um so yeah um no look it's yeah so it's worth the wait so november is when the the michael j murphy box comes out cool um i guess that's about it um if there's anything else
3: yeah i'll i'll just say if you're a fan of physical media or genre film do make sure you check out Simon's uh, YouTube channel and his website, Explosive Action, Mm. because, um, yeah, he goes through a rundown of all the, you know, many DVDs and Blu-rays that he gets in and I find out about lots of films that, you know, I might not find out about otherwise by watching it and his reviews online and his endless passion for genre film and physical media especially kind of trashy like neglected genres and you can also uh follow me via my podcast laudanum and lace Mm
5: -hmm.
3: also to be found on social media instagram facebook etc so thank you for having me it's been an absolute thrill and pleasure to talk about sword and sorcery because Anyone that knows me, you know, like I said, you sit still long enough, I'll start telling you about some obscure sword and sorcery film. No,
1: <laughs> thank you, Suzanne. That was amazing. Um, mm, thank and... you.
2: And yeah, check out Simon's little uh, videos.
1: Yes, and, uh, I will. It's I will. always
2: fun to see him. Uh, what black metal uh, records he bought from a little hut in Oslo, yeah, from Germany <laughs> or Russia, you know. <laughs> yeah.
4: Thanks for that. Yeah. The. Um the content is split between movies and 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 uh the more extreme side of metal but if you're just there for the movies i definitely talk about them quite a bit um and uh yeah i've been running that youtube channel since 2011 can you believe it's been that long damn uh, and and right. you
3: tell us quickly about your little documentary that you made that's up
1: there mm. I'll, oh. put, I'll put in the link of the show notes as well all of this so please Yeah, okay. Well, speaking of
4: micro-budget filmmakers, um, one of my favorites is a Philippine director who's uh, no longer with us, uh, Teddy Page. Uh, His real name is Teddy Chu. Um, He churned out 25 or so um, really awesome action films in the Philippines, filled with many American expat stars. And I just got the great idea one day to make a little mini fan documentary. It's nothing um, professional, but I just started to talk about all of the films because I had them all on DVD or VHS. And uh, then I um, talked to uh, Philippine cinema expert, uh, Andrew Leibold, and mm. he finally offered his um, his face for the camera and his, his knowledge, his deep knowledge of um, Teddy Chu and a lot of the other people that uh, swam in the same ocean with him, um, and added some really good historical c- context about um, how those films were made and, and the producers and that kind of thing. So yeah, do check that out. It's uh, it's on my YouTube channel. You can you can search for it. It's called Philippine Soldiers: The Action Films of Teddy pa- Teddy Page. So uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun putting that one together.
3: It's great.
4: Yeah, mm, it's great.
3: Yeah, it's a great short. Okay. It's like an hour long or something,
2: I think.
4: Yeah, um, I filmed it over about three months, and if you pay close attention, you will see where my glasses change because my old ones <laughs> broke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll and, be watching that. Yeah, I didn't
2: uh, notice. I'll watch again.
4: <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll notice that, and um, because I was filming it at night sort of every other night, just doing pieces for it, um, I couldn't get the shirt washed because I kept washing uh, wearing the same. Um, in search of Wen Wang t-shirt so it was unwashed for three months i just kept putting it on every evening for half an hour
2: <laughs> ah, beautiful. so
3: type it in explosive action not explosive diarrhea oh, which thanks. is no but every time i search it i try and search <laughs> it, i get an auto suggestion of that like did, you, like, mean, did, you, that yeah, did you
1: mean
2: yeah did you mean
3: no oh. i did not mean that
2: <laughs> what have you been looking at suzanne <laughs> well, i think
3: it's just because i look up explosive action all the time
1: amazing and speaking of which we may um have andrew on very soon for the maybe the next episode possibly possibly i think um uh, for a certain Santos Santos uh, film series. So um, Andrew is the master of all things Santo, and obviously Indicator are doing a Santo box. So um, we'll we'll be looking to get Andrew on for the next one. So uh, yeah, very keen for that box. Oh yeah, <laughs> done properly. Yes, n- nudge nudge. Not a uh, not a bunch of uh, English dubs from a, a video master. <clears throat> so yes, now it looks good. Um perfect. Well I, I guess that's it. Uh thank you everyone for your time. Thank you, Simon, for coming on. Really appreciate Thanks it. Me. Very, very uh,
4: enjoyable. We've been on two and a half hours.
1: Yes, it will it just, just flew by. So um yeah, well um yeah, you know, if there's another topic in the future, Simon, let us know. You're keen on. Please, we'd love to have you back. Um just keep us posted. Yeah, well, when
4: Indicator releases a box set on jungle action films shot in the Philippines, right here. That'll be the first one we call. uh, Indicator, please release a box set of Teddy Page films. Thank you.
1: Anything's possible now. It is. Excellent. Um, Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Suzanne. Really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, Thank you, Tony and Ryan. And, uh, yeah, I think it it was a lot of fun. It was a blast.
0: Absolutely. It was
1: an absolute cool, blast. Cool, cool. I guess that's it. Well I guess we'll uh, we'll see you all then. Thank you Ugh. very much. Thank you for listening.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye.